Good morning. Please turn with me to the scripture reading, which is from Micah 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid upon us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will rise against him, seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This is the word of the Lord. We're spending this Advent season meditating on pretty popular traditional Christmas carols that uh, some of us have sung most of our lives. Some of them may be new uh, to some of you. Uh, but, but packed within these classic Christmas carols are themes of hope. And we're just meditating on them this Christmas season, trying to pull out, trying to glean from them uh, some hope for us uh, this season. And today I want to talk a little bit about origins, the origins of certain things. Uh, the origins, for instance, of today's Christmas carol come from 19th century America. And it's loved especially by children, and actually it was written for children. Uh, Philip, Bro Philip Brooks was an Episcopal pastor, uh, born in Boston, uh, but serving in the 1860s in Philadelphia at Holy Trinity Church, his Episcopal church. And around Christmas time in 1868, Philip Brooks, who was a very well-known uh, American preacher, and writer in the 1860s. He was looking for a new Christmas carol to share with the children of his church for their children's Christmas program. And he was not coming up with uh, any good options, so he decided to write a carol himself. And so he had spent three years earlier than that, in 1865, he had, he had done a Holy Land tour. And on the evening of Christmas Eve, he was at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, worshiping on Christmas Eve. And as a young man, that left an indelible mark on him. So that three years later, uh, that experience inspired the carol he wrote for the children in 1868, Old Little Town of Bethlehem. That's where it came from. And so he wrote those words, and then he handed off to the church organist, who was also the church Sunday school superintendent, his name was Lewis Redner. He handed him those words, and he said, could you come up with some music for me? And so Lewis Redner struggled to find a fitting melody, and he woke up in the middle of the night, the night before the Christmas program 
And he woke up and the melody came to him. He said it was given to him like a gift. And he wrote down the melody, came up with the music at the last minute, and it was a hit. The children of their church loved it. And still to this day, children and adults really enjoy O Little Town of Bethlehem. With imagination, the carol illustrates the lowly, humble status of ancient Bethlehem contrasted with the cosmic grandeur of what actually happened there when Christ was born. Such a contrast, this little, out-of-the-way country village, the Son of God, enters the human existence, human history, time and space in this little place. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Yet in the dark streets shineth, shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. He captured well with imagination the great contrast. Small town, a common home, an animal's feeding manger, and right there lay the light of light, very God of very God. And, and such is the profound mystery of how God works to bring about our salvation. You see this again and again in the Bible, you hear this again and again in Christian theology, and if you've lived the Christian life, you know this is true. That God takes what seems insignificant or uneventful or non-existent to the eyes of many people in our world, and from those experiences and from those circumstances, he visits us, and he knows us personally, and he saves us. And I hope you will see today from this carol that humble weakness, like Bethlehem was humble and weak, humble weakness is the best condition in which you and I may know God personally. We are struck by his magnitude and wonder as we consider the creation, the physical creation. But to know God personally, we must embrace what is humble and what is weak. That's how he comes to us. That's how he presents himself in a fallen world, at least for now. That's how he presents himself to us. And I think you see this very much in the origins of Bethlehem itself. Now, it was a small town in the region of Ephrata, in the territory of Judah, and it was the home of the man Boaz and his wife Ruth, the Moabite, and of their descendants, one Jesse and his seven sons, the youngest being David, the shepherd, the songwriter, who would eventually become the king of ancient Israel. But those days of Bethlehem's unique place in Israel's history were centuries past, 700 years past, when today's passage from the prophet Micah was actually written. So Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, they ministered around, around the same time in history. And Micah prophesied during the time that the Assyrian Empire was a threat as it continued to push westward toward the land of Palestine. So possibly in the year 701 BC, during the threat of Sennacherib, um, the king of Assyria against the king of Judah, Hezekiah, in Jerusalem, this is maybe when uh, this prophecy was written down and, and came to Micah, in which he says in verse 1 of today's passage, Micah chapter 5, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Another way of saying that is, O city of raids. 
Okay, the idea was they were being harassed by the Assyrians. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So this was a tense time for Judah. The Assyrians had already taken the northern kingdom of Israel and Samaria, and now the Assyrians had their eyes on Judah and Jerusalem. And for King Hezekiah and his people, this was an embarrassing, humiliating moment uh, where Assyria was taunting them and threatening them, and they felt powerless. But in that moment, Micah heralded that help would one day come to Judah, not from the city of Jerusalem, but from the country. Going on in verse 2, he declared, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. But when Jesus was born 700 years later, a thousand years had passed since the days of Bethlehem's notoriety. David's descendants, the kings, had brought Jerusalem and the entire nation down through decadence and moral decline. Empire after empire had harassed and subjugated Judah. And by the time of the incarnation in Bethlehem, Bethlehem was not only a small town, it was all but forgotten as a name. You might remember, according to Matthew's gospel, that when the Herod the king of the day found out that a new king, the true king, had been born, he had to ask the scribes and the chief priests, where was the Messiah supposed to be born? It wasn't common knowledge at the time of the incarnation. So not in Jerusalem, not in Rome, not in Athens, but in Bethlehem is where the Son of God chose to enter the human experience. Or if you will, not in New York City, not in Washington, D.C., not even in Baltimore, but in Hampstead, in Tawnytown, in Westminster, came the Son of God to dwell among us. God personally came to us in humble, weak conditions. Now, Bethlehem's apparent insignificance reminds me of how, God kingdom, how God's kingdom operates in this fallen world. The origins of a person's faith sometimes appear to be in, in, insignificant. The Apostle Paul once said to the church in Corinth, think about you, brothers and sisters, how many of you came from noble birth? How many of you come from high upbringing? Almost none of you. And that's the funny thing about this Jesus is people seem to have faith in him uh, who, who come out of seemingly insignificant and normal and lowly circumstances. And think about your own life if you're a Christian. This certainly applies for me. Somebody's self-discovery that Jesus is Lord and Savior is not always a sudden and dramatic experience. It does happen that way for some people. We read about it in special books. For some people, Jesus does come to them and they experience faith and conversion in dramatic and sudden ways. But even in those cases with dramatic conversion experiences, people seem to always be able to point back to times in their lives when the grace of God was present, 
where God preserved them, where he kept them and encouraged them, where, where echoes of his grace kept them alive or kept them focused or helped them go down one path and not another path. And they would be able to say to you, I became a Christian. I became convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior at this time in my life. But even before I knew him, even before I was looking for him, even when I hated him, he was actively working. Now, if you are today considering yourself to be an unbeliever, you look at Christianity from the outside, at least for now, maybe God is working on you right now. Maybe he's been working on you, which is why you're right here today with us. But maybe he's been working silently, gradually. If you're a Christian, maybe God is doing the same thing, but in a different way. Maybe he is slowly changing your mind about something or slowly changing your heart about someone. <clears throat> silently. Inconspicuously. Jesus would illustrate how God influences the world, how in a fallen world full of sinful people like me, how the kingdom of God takes root in people. Jesus would say, recorded in Matthew's gospel, chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. You see, a person's faith, your faith, may look insignificant or invisible now. But by the grace of God, that faith will grow to overwhelm your life and produce fruit. So this Christmas, maybe, become more mindful of what seems insignificant in this world. Maybe this Christmas become more mindful of who seems insignificant in this world. The origins of unbelief are actually born out of false assumptions that we carry with us and misguided desires that we cherish and nurture. That's often where our unbelief comes from. We can miss what God is doing in us. We can miss what God is doing in our community. We can miss what he's doing in other people. We can miss what God is doing in the world when we look for his presence and his power and his love in the wrong places. Many people were not interested in the Messiah who was born in Bethlehem. He did not grow up to accommodate their wishes. He did not speak to enable their ambitions. He did not act to nurse their personal concerns. Whatever the reasons you may have for not embracing this Jesus, the actual historical Jesus, the one recorded in the scriptures, whatever your reasons for not embracing him or listening to him, the Jesus that actually came, the reason is probably because you are bringing the wrong assumptions to him. You are bringing the wrong desires the wrong worries to him. Look, the true Jesus, the actual Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, 
Not the ones that we've been, not the forms of Jesus that we've been making up for 2,000 years. But the real Jesus, he may have for you, friend, infinite love and compassion. He knows our weaknesses. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who was tested in every way as we were, and as Chris said earlier, but didn't sin. So he knows you, and he loves you, and he has great infinite compassion for you, but at the same time, he is far less worried about what worries you. He may not be worried at all about the things that worry you. And the things that you may think you need, he is not interested in giving you. Rather, Jesus is like, he's like the best Christmas gifts. The ones that you never thought you needed and didn't ask for, and in time come to discover that they were exactly what you needed. The origins of God's salvation are born out of humility and weakness. Philip Brooks' carol went on to say, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. You see what Brooks was doing there? He was showing that the gift of faith can come just as quietly as Jesus came. The Son of God came into this world, except for the few people who first beheld his arrival in quite an inconspicuous way. I mean, the angels were there. The shepherds saw the angels. That blew them away. Eventually, the Magi got there. It was Mary and Joseph, some animals, his family and relatives. But most of the world missed it on that night. Most of the, the world missed his 33 years. Many of the people who saw him and heard him and even saw his miracles missed him. Quite inconspicuous. And yet he was there. In C.S. Lewis's last Narnia book, The Last Battle, there's a moment near the end of the story where a peculiar stable comes into the story. Uh, there's a great conflict inside and outside of this stable, but the stable is of such a variety that the inside of the stable is infinitely larger than the outside of the stable. From the outside, it looks like a little hut. From the inside, there's another world in there as the children have to experience for themselves. I won't do any spoil alerts this time. I did it like a month ago. I destroyed some kid's heart <laughs> by talking about the end of the Narnia series. Okay, I won't say what it is. However, in response to the idea that the stable was inside bigger than its outside, Queen Lucy responds by saying this, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Little forgotten Bethlehem hosted the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I wonder if the eternal word of God, the Messiah, the Christ, our creator, is even now opening the stable door of your heart and silently, how silently, making a move on you to woo you until his everlasting light grows in you. And you look back and go, how did this happen? Where did he come from? He's been there 
all along. Silently, silently, the wondrous gift is given. Inconspicuously, gradually wooing you to himself so that you one day with all of us can sing these words, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Humble weakness is the best condition in which we may know God personally. And if you know him then increasingly, So this Christmas, maybe become more mindful of what or who seems insignificant. And God may be working on you, but to notice it, you must embrace it. You must receive him. You must become humble. You must acknowledge your unlikely circumstances to be the object of a holy creator's love. You must become humble and acknowledge your sin. And recognize and be honest with yourself about your weakness. And allow the dear Christ to enter in. Let's pray. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels The great glad tidings tell, O come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Amen.